Welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. Our episode this week features Doug Wagner, Doug Wagner Fishing, Doug Wagner YouTube Fishing, I guess. It's Doug Wagner Fishing on YouTube. And I don't know, we're going to kind of bounce around on topics because Doug kind of bounces around all over the place. He fishes in Wisconsin, primarily on Green Bay, he fishes over Minnesota, and he fishes up in Canada. So that's kind of what uh, what we're going to do this week. And my co-host again this week is Brad Hoppy with Musky Mayhem Tackle. Brad, I'd ask you what you've been up to, but I mean, I was on the phone with you for a couple hours this morning, but it's only literally been less than 24 hours since we recorded our last episode, so not much is going on. Surprisingly, we're actually ahead. I mean, like this episode doesn't even come out from like, I don't know, like a week, at least a week from when when we're recording it, which almost never happens, so it must be off-season. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> we're getting it done in quick fashion in comparison to the, during the musky season, that's for sure. Yeah, typically, I mean, it is Monday right now. This episode doesn't come out till the following Wednesday. Usually, we'd be recording like this Wednesday's episode, either either today or tomorrow or whatever. <laughs> it's pretty brutal during the season. Well, we just like to keep you on your toes, you know, when you're putting it all together to make it uh, feasible for somebody to actually listen to. You just get down to the nitty gritty, I guess, on on most occasions during the season, but. It's that time of the year where you got a little bit of extra time as far as being able to work on it and also get some of these guys to talk to us. Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, we do this every single week, but you know, Brad and I and Carrie, when she's on, we don't pull anything from the podcast. So the only thing we get out of it is a chance to spam you with talk of our company for about 30 seconds. So uh, fast forward 30 seconds, if you don't want to hear me talk about Team Rhino Outdoors and have Brad talk about Musky Mayhem Tackle, but if you're still looking for gear or you're looking for Christmas gifts, check out Team Rhino Outdoors. That would be teamrhinooutdoors.com. And we're basically going to start pulling things together because we're going to hopefully see many of you at a show in Chicago. Like the, I don't know, we'll call it the first weekend in, in uh, January, but I think it's actually like technically the second. It's pretty early, like 6th, 7th, 8th maybe, 7th, 8th, 9th, something like that. So, Brad, why don't you talk a little bit about Musky Mayhem Tackle? Yeah, it's coming down to the wire here. I mean, when everybody listens to this, we're getting pretty darn close to Christmas. That's for sure, Jeff. So if you are looking for something for Musky Mayhem Tackle, you can definitely check out muskymayhemtackle.com. Real quick and simple, you can order right direct from us or maybe even check out some of the different retailers that carry our stuff. We appreciate it. Um, You can also check out some of our videos, different tip segments and things like that on our YouTube channel. Be sure to follow our Instagram and our Facebook as well. All right, Brad, short and sweet this week on the intro. I think we should just go dial up our conversation with Doug Wagner. Absolutely. Let's go get it done. All right, our guest this week is Doug Wagner, Doug Wagner Fishing. You can find it both on a website and on YouTube. Uh, Doug's kind of all over the place these days. Social media is definitely his thing. Doug, thanks for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, in my house where it's nice and warm already starting to think about next year's musky season well it'll be here before you know it i mean we're gonna probably talk a little bit about shows returning a little bit later in this podcast but i mean it's definitely on the horizon so it'll be that'll be a nice transition we haven't had that in a couple years for sure no it'll be good to see everybody again and just get out of the house and go see a bunch of new stuff and a bunch of new people and baits and just get all jazzed up for the upcoming season i know my season just ended four days ago and i've already got plans for next year already it, it hasn't left my mind yet right exactly 
So, Doug, usually first-time guests on the podcast, we kind of get them to talk about themselves a little bit. So here's your opportunity. Why don't you, you know, give the listeners an idea of who you are or what you're up to, maybe kind of give them a background on what got you into muskie fishing. Sure. Um, I guess to start where, where I'm at right now, I'm, uh, I'm a full-time fishing guide. I, I live in Green Bay. I, I travel around and fish a lot of different areas, whether Green Bay is kind of my home. And then I do some stuff in Minnesota. I do a good amount of stuff in Canada full-time guide and it's not just specifically muskies i'd say muskies are my specialty but i also guide for walleyes for about two months in the spring and then probably about a month or three weeks of smallmouth fishing as well so um not just strictly muskies but they're definitely what i'm always thinking about what i'm always looking forward to and try and spend as much time uh doing that as well and i guess then in those trips or whatever uh, i do a lot of filming for my youtube channel um that kind of got me started um as far as building my name or reputation or whatever you want to call it, um, in the industry itself. And I think it helped a lot with my guide business. Um, I've had that for about six years now. And I just, I had a lot of really amazing people that helped me get here. I mean, I'm sure I'll mention a few of them throughout the podcast, but, um, I wouldn't be here with, without a lot of great people that helped me get here, um, pushed me to guide, pushed me to do the, the social media stuff. And it's just been a ton of fun. And I've, like I said, I've, I have a lot of people to thank me or to thank for, getting me here but muskies are, are what i live for and you know walleyes and smallmouth basically just pass the time what would you say doug is your your percentage you know between all the other multi-species and then the muskie i mean the majority of the muskie season i'm guessing that's what you kind of said you're, you're trying and thinking about that all the time is that the greater percentage or no yeah for sure so we're lucky over here in the great lakes where we don't have a closed season for our walleyes so my walleye fishing starts in the middle of March. I fish walleye till basically the beginning of May. And then our muskie opener is the end of May. So that little window, like three weeks time, I'm doing some bath stuff in May. And then once our muskie season opens for our northern Wisconsin um, Memorial Day weekend, we start on Green Bay. And from there, you know, the last few years with customers and whatnot, I've been able to kind of shape the rest of my season to straight muskies. And I have had to do a little bit of traveling to go to Minnesota for a while because um, our our bite here kind of slows down for a bit. And then I head up to Canada and I do about a month of fishing up there in July. And then I come home to Green Bay and kind of finish out uh, August, September, October. And then the last few years I've been doing some stuff in Canada in the fall, which has been a ton of fun. And that's probably turning into some of my favorite fishing. And then wrap up some stuff in Green Bay if you know, late in the year, November, and then our, our season now, a couple of years ago, changed to December 31st. So we can fish them as long as you want, almost. Generally, our lakes are frozen or the bays even got a good amount of ice in it by the time we hit the 31st. But I would say muskies are 65% of my business, and then walleyes and smallmouth would take up the rest of that. Hey, Doug, let me jump in with a question about Green Bay. It's something I talked to. Uh, I'm friends with Kevin Pischke from, you know, he guides up in the same waters that you do. And yep. it seems like that Green, you know, like Green Bay, you see a lot of big fish, as you're aware. You know, you see them early season. You see them again in July and August and September, great months to catch big fish. Malax is, you know, like famous for giant muskies. Obviously, the record came out of there recently. And mm -hmm. you just don't see that out of Green Bay. Do you think, what? what's your thought process on that? Why don't you see these giant muskies in Green Bay? Because they're there, obviously, but you just don't see them show up in pictures. Do you think it's a lack of pressure? Have you personally seen, you know, big muskies in November in on Green Bay? Because it just seems like 
you see guys catching them and there's a lot of 40 inchers, you know, in, in that size range, maybe some 45s, but you'd never see that true late, uh, fall giant out of green Bay. Yeah. It, that's a really interesting topic. So, I mean, before I even was guiding here in like the early 2000s, those guys, um, like October, November was the time to be on green Bay. And that's when all the guys were in the lower Bay and trolling was a huge thing for those guys then. And that was like, the best time to catch them and now in the last whatever 10 15 years everything's kind of changed to more of the summer patterns and september like august and september are now our best months for sure and i always say like once you hit october 1st it gets harder every single day um, generally our numbers go up but we're catching a lot smaller fish on average and where our big fish go is is a mystery um, i know a good amount of our fish feed at night um, in the rivers and walleye guys are catching them they're in very condensed areas and it's, it's not enjoyable to fish. Um, you're dealing with a lot of shore fishermen and it's, we got a big one like three weeks ago, we got a 53 and a half by 26. But the other thing with green Bay too, is like our fish hold their girth so well throughout the season. We don't really see too many fish that are upwards of 26 inches. You know, you hear people or see people on social media throw numbers around, but I think I girth almost all of my 50 inches and there's only a few people I would believe if they actually told me they caught one that was over say 27 inches. Um, they, we just don't get that big belly that you see in the Minnesota fish, um, or some places, some places in Canada have it. And especially out East that get those big drop down bellies. Our fish just seem to carry their weight more so all the way through versus having the big belly and our fall fishing is just really weird. Um, where those fish go and what they do. And it's, it's definitely frustrating. And, Honestly, I know a lot of, you know, the best guides here in Green Bay and we all chit chat and talk and they just, you know, nobody's, nobody has anything or has dialed in that pattern. And honestly, it's by that time I'm ready to uh, see some new water and get out of town and get away from some people. And that's when I go up to Canada, but I guess I'm kind of punting and forfeiting. Um, but I do dabble around with it a little bit. Like when I got home here in the middle of November, I dabbled around with some stuff. And that is when we did end up catching that 53 and a half by 26. Um, but it was a, a total fluke and not a pattern that I was able to replicate for the next four or five days of those head guide trips. Well, like you had mentioned, you know, earlier in the Green Bay days, you know, let's just say back in the, I don't know, it'd probably be like the late 90s, the 2000s. Most of those guys didn't even musky fish there until, like you said, like late October or November. And they would mostly just fish into the river and then in the mouth. My hypothesis was a little bit potentially on the fact that these fish are so pressured before that, that it possibly changes their, you know, I, I guess their locations at that time of year. So I, I don't know if, you know, if that's possible or not, but it's just something I always considered because like you said, you used to see big fish in November. That's what old, we'll call them older musky anglers. That's what they did. Yeah. No, and I, I think one part of it too, um, a lot from what I hear from the guys, I've, I've really only been targeting muskies on green bay for i'd say six years seriously but you talk to some of the guys that have been here longer than myself and they all used to talk about how all the like how there used to be so many white fish that used to come into the lower bay um in the fall because the way our system works is we have a, a migration of fish throughout the season in the summer months our fish are about 20 miles north of green bay and throughout the season they start moving further and further south and it's they're just following the shad population but then once our water gets into the below 50 there used to be a bunch of whitefish that would come down to spawn in the Fox River, which is our biggest inflow, 
And then also just spawning, you know, the bottom of the bay, which we call University Bay. There's a bunch of gravel and sand and like really nice spawning habitat for the whitefish. But now it's, you know, more, I've, I've never really marked like these big schools of whitefish like you see in Canada or Minnesota. Like you see these big schools of whiteies. But we just don't see that here. And I don't think that those whitefish are actually coming down into the bay so much to spawn anymore. And I think they're possibly staying up north and some of our big fish might be swimming north to target those fish, but then also like when I'm talking to biologists is they've now told us that our whitefish can spawn anywhere from 60 feet of water to zero feet of water. So, I mean, we're looking at a piece of a body of water that's a hundred miles long by an average, like 15 miles wide. I mean, it's three times the size of Lake St. Clair and like six times the size of Mille Lacs. So there's a little bit of water for them to hide in. And I think that just, it makes it hard as well kind of backing up a little bit, Doug, you know, you were talking about how the Green Bay fish hold their weight. And I think that's pretty true. I mean, if you go back to the old Mille Lacs days, those Wisconsin fish just seem to have that thickness from the tail all the way to the head. And uh, we've seen it here in Minnesota with some of the Wisconsin strain. So I kind of understand what you're talking about there. But do you think they put any more egg weight on? I mean, the, the girth might not be noticeable in the pictures or whatever, but uh, have you ever played with weighing any of these fish? I have a scale in my boat, and I've, I've wanted to. For me, personally, I, I, I bought a cradle. I bought a certified scale. Like I, have, I have all the stuff to do it. And I really I want to weigh one. I just haven't caught one in the water temperatures that I'd like to weigh one. Granted, the one I caught a couple weeks ago, it was in the back of my mind to weigh the fish. And I did want to do it. I, I just got back from a trip to Canada, and we, we did weigh like, two fish up there. And I wanted to do it. The fish was tired. It was a long fight. Um, I had a 12-year-old kid that caught it. And I just didn't want to stress that fish out anymore. I don't I don't think that fish was, say, 50 pounds. or like I, I only weighed a handful of muskies, and they were all the, in the lower 40s. But um, for me to actually want to weigh a fish, I would have to think it would be in that upper 40s to possibly a 50-pound fish. Um, it, it puts a lot of stress in them, and they go through enough as it is. And the interesting part about our, our Great Lakes strain fish here is I've been able to fish a fair amount of places for you know the time that I've been musky fishing, and I can honestly say that I've never seen a fish that is as fragile as a Green Bay you know, Great Lakes stream musky. These they just they're if you don't do everything right with these fish, I see a lot of floaters. I've lost fish personally. I mean they they just are so soft and fragile. I haven't found it worth quite doing yet. Well, that's an obvious deal. I mean I. All of us as muskie anglers, I think we all care a bunch about these fish. And the last thing we want to do is have a mortality. But uh, so I, I give you, you know, my congrats to that. I mean, that's ob- obviously uh, our biggest concern as fishermen. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. It, it's something like if, if, if I came across the right fish, um, and I think it would either have to be, if, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to catch a a fish worth out that I want to weigh, say it's upper, what I believe it might be upper 40 pounds or close to the 50 pound mark. I would want to do it in the fall, cold water temperatures. But I also think that my best chance of catching that fish might be opening weekend. If we have a, a pre-spawn fish, I've caught a couple of those over the past like 53 inches that are full of eggs. We had a 51 and a half this year that was full of eggs. That I think is a really good chance of cracking that, that four upper 40, 50 pound mark as well. And, that time of year, you do not want to touch these fish any more than they have to. Granted, we're a totally um, stock fishery. We have zero natural reproduction in the bay, but at the same time, it's just that, that fish's life is not worth weighing it. It's not, 
any kind of record. It's nothing. I mean, it's, I'd like to know how long the fish is. And most of the time I, I could care less, you know, what the fish even is as far as length. And it comes down to customer's preference on that part. And we try and make that as fast as possible. But in order for me to weigh one, I think it would have to be super late fall, um, a short, a short battle and, you know, making sure that that fish is in great health to, you know, keep it out of the water for, I mean, it doesn't take long. It's, it's 15 to 20 seconds, but that can be the difference between your fish swimming off or that fish not making it. I totally understand that. I mean, I, I don't even have a scale. I could care less, I guess. But I was just kind of curious if you if you had played with it. You know, you hear about different people talking about it all the time. I was just kind of curious, you know, what, what uh, all goes about. One question I got, because I'm not exactly sure, does Wisconsin have a release record as well or no? So I don't think we have one, honestly. Or if, if, if we do, there hasn't been one that came up in recent years. I know the the longest fish I know of coming out of, and this isn't like in recent years, um, is a fish that one of my mentors, Luke Ronestrand, caught. And it's pictures on the bump board. The fish bumps out at 58 and a quarter. Um, and you guys both know Luke. He's a super stand-up guy. I mean, he has absolutely zero reason to fib it at all. Um, but that's the longest fish I know coming out of Green Bay. And that fish was caught in the spring. It was pre-spawn and it had about a 26-inch girth. But that fish, you know, is, is right there around the number in that 50-pound range. But, again, it was in the spring. They measured it. They released it. And it was, uh, it was actually cool. They caught that fish two years prior at 57 inches. Um, so that was, a, that was a special one for sure. Pretty cool. I, I knew when CJ caught it and I knew when Luke caught it. And uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty remarkable that uh, you get that fish two years later. And, and that's the whole gig. I mean, releasing those fish, guess what? They got it again. You know, that's the cool part. So cool. I mean, and especially for the same guys to catch it. And two years later, it was two years later to the day. And the fish bit the same exact bait. And I think it was like 100 or 200 yards from where they caught it the two years prior. It was just absolutely amazing. And that was like a total genetic freak. Like our top end and our fish here generally like 56 inches. Um, so for that one to, to reach that 58 mark is really incredible. You just touched on something else that we should talk about uh, to the day. You just said that they caught that fish two years later to the day. Mm-hmm. How often do you think that happens in your boat? It's been a conversation that I've had with a bunch of different clients this year and friends and what have you. And it is remarkable how a calendar day, it seems like some of these fish go back and sit on that exact same spot. Have you uh, never noticed that or, or kind of made make mark of that in your mind? So I, um, I've always caught, I shouldn't say always, but I, my birthday is always a day that I seem to catch a big one. And that's August 21st. This year we had arguably my best day I've ever had on Green Bay. We went nine for 13 casting with a 52 and a quarter, I think it was. And we lost another one that was, I would say well over the 50 mark and you know, a handful of ones, which is an incredible day. Last year I did not get one on the 21st. I got a 50 a 51 and a 53 and a half on August 22nd. And either one of those days I will, I will take, and I always push or tell one of my good return guys, Hey, you should come fish me on my birthday. Like that. That's a really good day for whatever reason. It just, it just seems to be good. So Doug backing up a little bit, I had heard a rumor that used to be Joe Booker's cameraman. Is that, is that actually true? So, yeah. So 
it's a it's a long story, but basically, my dad's ex business partner was Joe's brother in law, and um, I got to meet Joe at a young age. I think I was probably eight or nine years old at the time. Um, he, Joe was super good to me. Kind of took me under his wing. I I love musky fishing from the beginning. I've been a musky nut since I can, as far as I can remember. My grandpa was a musky fisherman. Um, my dad got me into it. Um, but yeah, it ended up where me and Joe just kind of got close and his cameraman actually uh, fell out of a tree set in a tree stand in August. And for whatever reason, Joe just got a hold of me, called me and said, Hey man, um, can you be at my house in four days? And I actually just started like my first real career. I did sewer and water. I worked for a construction company in Milwaukee and the laborers union. I had like just started this real, like a real job making real money and benefits and everything. I was, I was 18 years old at the time, one year out of high school. I asked my boss if I could go to Canada for 10 days and for some reason he let me go. And it was a cool experience. Um, it was just a one trip, 10 day deal. Um, uh, it was Joe, myself and Rich Belanger from St. Croix. Uh, we went and had a great trip. It was the one year that I never went to Canada myself personally and fished. What I learned in that one year, just from sitting in the back of the boat and watching Joe fish was, was incredible and something that definitely aided in a lot of my fishing, even to this day. And Joe was just super good to me. And me and Rich had a blast. We were just in the back of the boat having a ball. And Joe actually caught one of his biggest muskies on that trip. So that was, that was pretty special. Um, you know, Joe's never been a guy to measure fish. And at that time, I didn't have like, the greatest you know, eye for how big they were, but it was a really big one. I would guess 53 to 54 inches, which for Lake of the Woods is reaching your top end for sure. So that was really cool to be a part of. So I was a cameraman for 10 days, one trip. So what everybody really wants to know is, did you master that crossover hold that Joe does in those 10 days or not? No, I didn't. I didn't fish. <laughs> well, I should, I made like four casts. I was twitching in the back of the boat all week. And finally, Joe said I could grab a rod and make like four casts with this rock behind us. And I cast it as hard as I could and as far as I could. Um, but I didn't catch one. I did not master the, the Joe hold. I don't know. That's uh, That is a trademark though, for sure. Oh, what kind of question was that, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> I had to lighten the mood a little bit. We were a little too serious there for about 20 minutes, so I figured I'll oh, throw him a curveball. That's not something he's going to expect. <laughs> I love that. That's funny. Joe's not that big of a guy, and I think it was it almost made his fish look bigger, I think, half the time. I mean, it didn't show off the fish, I don't think, the greatest, but it was different. He was a, he was a camera, I mean, a guy that just wanted to show all angles of the fish, and you got to kind of look at the head of the fish and the teeth, almost like a Pete Mana hold. Um, some of those old school guys just were, you know, and the face of a muskie is just so cool. And it was a definitely a different angle on it that no one else was doing. And it was totally unique to Joe. I mean, to this day, if you ever see it, it's the first person you think of. Well, I mean, getting back to those like 10 days. So obviously you have a YouTube channel and it's been successful. Did you have, in, I mean, did that help spark your interest in filming stuff? No, it, it definitely um, sparked my interest in fishing and filming. After that, I remember I got some GoPros. I think a couple of years later, GoPros came out. So that would have been 2013 that I did that. Um, and shortly after that, I know I got a couple of GoPros and I started filming. And if I would have started, like, I was filming for probably four years before I ever actually put anything on YouTube. And if I would have got you know, in that curve of it, I'd probably be a lot further along with my channel as of right now and like, really on the forefront of YouTube fishing. Um, but I just filmed it and wanted to show my buddies and wanted to look, you know, watch myself and 
see mistakes that I was making. It was like, it was like watching film for football or sports. Like you could see what you did wrong in certain situations or watch how the fish reacted or, you know, you, you can learn a lot from, from filming and it, it is a huge pain in the butt. There's no doubt about that. It, it definitely takes away from fishing and makes, you know, the pressure of everything that much higher, but it was definitely really cool to look back on. And I'm glad I've done it all these years, but that was definitely something that, you know, sparked my interest and wanted me to do it myself. Well, you know, Doug, if you're looking to get a bunch of subscribers, you could think about some catching cooks and some truck camping. I hear that stuff goes over well. <laughs> yeah, smoked musky and uh, yeah. <laughs> catching cook seasonings on the old musky fillets. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, maybe stay away from the catching cooks, but the truck camping thing you should think about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I make fun of Matt. So Matt's actually a good friend of mine, and I, I make fun of Matt for all the time. Like, dude, you know, like, musky guys have been doing this for years. And you just made it like cool. Like this, you're not any kind of pioneer. Like we all slept in our trucks at the boat launch and for years before, you know, guys before I even was, I mean, you guys have been doing friends, Brad slept in his truck. I don't know how many freaking times. I mean, musky guys have been pushing themselves to the edge since it ever started to be a thing. And whatever. I make fun of Maverick for all the time, but he is, a, I'm happy for him. He's, he's made a huge platform and is absolutely killing it. Yep. Absolutely. He wasn't necessarily the one, because, I mean, there's a bunch of them that do it, but, you know, he's definitely right. one of them. I mean, there's no. it's, ama- it's amazing that there's enough people that want to watch that stuff, but, hey, it works for him, right? Yeah, I mean, kid's making a freaking killing. He's a millionaire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, on to something real, Brad. What do we got next? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Doug. Why don't we talk a little bit more in depth about your season this past year? You just said you buttoned it up four days ago. Give us a little preview of what kind of took place this past season. So this season was unique and was different. And it seems like every season is that way. But this year was definitely a a warm spring. Um, Our water temps were way ahead of of schedule. Um, Our opener here, personally on Green Bay, was the latest it could possibly be. Last year it was the earliest at the 23rd. And this year I think it was like the 28th or 29th. Uh, But super late, which is is hard on us because we only have a good shot at a lot of our fish when they're in the rivers or in these shallow bays recovering from the spawn. And even now and then we catch a fish that hasn't spawned yet. So we had a lot of fish that were already gone out of the rivers, out of the bays by the time we were able to fish for them. So that made it really interesting. And I know it was probably the toughest spring a lot of these guys have ever had to deal with. I know me personally, we only had a handful of fish and I think the eight or nine days that I fished our opener and it was tough. So that, that was off to a tough start. We ended up getting a big one on opening day. We had a pre-spawn 51-incher that was dumping eggs all over the boat. Like, as soon as I, I grabbed her and put any kind of, you know, press on her belly at all, um, it was a guy's first fish, and I just, I grabbed her. I had him just hold the tail quick and put her back in the boat, but she, like, a pancake-sized eggs all over the floor of my boat. But after that, it got, like, really tough, and, you know, only caught a handful of fish, but it led in nicely to when I went over to Minnesota. Um when I got there, like the open water bite was like full force going. And I think our first day we had four fish. Um, the first week we were averaging like three fish a day. It was just like, it was on and going really, really good for about 10 days. And then, um, the fish actually started to push out of the open water into structure. And in that in-between period, you know, fish were out in open water, they're up in the structure and that made fishing tough. We were down to, I'd say a fish a day. Um, and maybe even just one really good opportunity a day. So that made things tough. And then I think in the middle of July, 
it would have been in July, somewhere in July, early July. I went up to Canada. My wife's Canadian and she was up there and that allowed me to cross the border before any other Americans. So I ran up to, to Lake of the Woods there, but that was how my, my kind of spring started. And it was, it was really tough in Green Bay. Minnesota was great to start and then it got, it got tough. Quick question for you, Doug. So you uh, are fishing the open water. Were you trolling or casting? Primarily casting. Uh, I did do a little bit of trolling. Some customers specifically wanted to troll. Some of my customers were very new to musky fishing, and they lived, actually one of my customers lives on a lake up there that has a very good open water criteria. I've never personally fished it, but just in talking to him, he just wanted to learn how to fish his own lake. And we didn't fish his specifically, but we fished a lake that was very similar to his. And he wants to learn a pattern. And the easiest thing to do was to troll. And we caught two fish the first day. And then the next day we went out and we casted the second day with those guys. And that's if we caught, I caught one casting and his son caught one casting. So a little bit of both. Yeah. I was just kind of curious if, uh, if you uh, were just spending most of your time casting or not, but you know, it seems like there's been kind of a switch here in the state of Minnesota over the last probably two, three years where guys are spending more time in the open water casting than they are actually trolling. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, trolling was super effective to start. And I think it's just the thing where those fish have been caught so many times by a a crankbait going in a straight line or, you know, even if you're changing your speeds and directions and stuff, it's still hard to, you know, change up your cadence as much as you're able to do with a rod in your hand casting. I think those fish are just getting conditioned to crankbaits, but our, our best crankbaits were, were still the 10 inch matlocks um, and a nine inch blue water baits um, deep herring. I personally haven't used the blue waters. You know, I've done some old school stuff too, like using the old uh, 10 inch jakes, the 14 inch jakes and the 13 inch grandmas, but I'm still doing pretty decent with all the supernatural as well. So it's, uh, it's hard to leave something like the supernatural baits when, when you're having success on it. But another one that kind of got mixed into the bunch in the last three to four years, I guess, is the hex from, from Phantom. I know they're still available. I know Jeff Schulte is trying to uh, pick up that company. So he's building them right now. I don't, have you played with the hex at all? So I have some, uh, I know guys kind of tend to prefer the tens over the twelves. I only have a couple twelves. And I have ran them. I can't say I personally got bit on them, but like you said, it, it's really hard to get away from the supernatural stuff. The blue water stuff when I'm there has, has been really good too. And especially being able to only run one line per person, it's it's hard to get away from your confidence base. Um, but some of the old school stuff has been good too. Like you said, the, the jakes are good to me as well. But generally, if, if you give me three rods, it's normally 10-inch matlocks, a 9-inch herring, and then a jake. But there's, it's kind of my go-to for a, a three-rod spread. How much does that change between states then? I mean, like, are you doing any of that early season trolling after the spawn over there in Wisconsin or no? So I did a little bit this year just because, like I said, our fish, there were so few fish. And I did find some fish. We caught a couple fish trolling this spring just kind of out in the abyss of Green Bay. And it was just adjacent areas to the river, nothing too crazy, not a true open water Minnesota-style stuff. Um, But we did catch, I think, three fish or two two fish i'm sorry trolling this spring and it was something that was new to me i, I hadn't really played with it i know like guys trolling the river and stuff but as far as like trolling outside of the, uh, the rivers and the shallow bays that was it was kind of cool to do something different and have a little bit of success with it yeah i've often thought about that on the bay you know i mean that's giant water i don't know where you'd really start on the open water bite out there but 
I mean, I haven't spent the time that you have out there. So I'm guessing there probably is that bite, but I just don't know. It's a needle in a haystack, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's just so big. Like, people don't understand. I don't think if you haven't fished Green Bay or, like, the Great Lakes, and St. Clair is not a Great Lake. It's a lake off of a Great Lake. Like, people don't understand how big this place actually is. Like, it is absolutely huge. Um, and you are just, like you said, literally fishing a needle in a haystack at all times. And our, our fish definitely spend time in open water, but a lot of our fish go shallow right away after the spawn, too. Some of the tracking studies we've done with the DNR, uh, we put 56 transmitters in fish over the last three years, and we got some of that data back. And you know, some fish, it, it's funny because they all have their own attitudes. They're all their own fish. Some of them are homebodies. We had a 53-incher that never left like a half-mile circle in a year and a half. And then we had some fish. Um, we had a 37-incher that was up towards, like, Grand Marais and, uh, like, Mackinac Bridge in, like, between two months like it was in green it was in bottom of green bay and two months later it was at mackinac bridge it's like 120 miles that's wild to think about but you know there's a bunch of different studies with transmitters in them and it's always amazed me you know iowa is a great example you know when the fish and spirit they they go out the spillway they collect them bring them all the way back through the system and eight hours later they're back down the creek again and so it's pretty amazing to think about, but they know where they want to be. That's for sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, more fish are getting caught by salmon guys too. This is interesting. Like our, you know, our fish are stocked in the green Bay side of things, whether mainly in the lower Bay, um, in the West shore. And we have a little bit of spawning or, um, stocking, I should say on the East shore. But I, I want to say there's, I heard of like six or seven fish that got caught by the salmon guys this year, like out in Lake Michigan. So around the door County Peninsula, and a lot of them are caught in like, you know, spoons that are like 60 feet down over 400 feet of water like those what are those fish doing right like they just totally left and even going back to some of our transmitter stuff we had we had fish that were getting picked up two days apart by they, they set a bunch of these whatever buoys that pick up the transmitters and we had one fish that swam 50 miles in two days and it was going like back and forth between these two areas. And it was just insane. Like it would pick it up multiple times in a day and then it would be gone for two days and the other buoy would pick it up. So, and that's just, you know, point A to B, who knows how far that fish zigzag to get to there. Like it's absolutely incredible how much these fish move. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting concept. You're talking about the salmon guys. And I know I've heard about one being down by Milwaukee actually. So I mean, they're definitely traveling, and I believe they were running their bait at like 56 feet down. So it's uh, it's quite amazing, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, it's a big pond. It's really big. Second biggest freshwater, or fourth biggest freshwater lake in the world. Yeah, it's totally amazing. So we've kind of made it to, you know, that starting to get into summer, I guess, is the best way to explain it. From there, I mean, are you, how long were you here in Minnesota, Doug? I think I was there for like 18 days. Okay. When did you shift gears and head to Canada? I want to say it was early July. I'm not, it was in July. I know that it might've been July 1st, honestly. Are you, uh, are you spending quite a bit of time up there, Doug? Are, are you guiding up there? I assume. Yeah. So, well, before the border closed, I was guiding on the Northwest Angle on Lake of the Woods. And I spend about a month there, basically the whole month of July. I spend on Lake of the Woods. I used to fish the Angle area quite a bit, um, uh, 20 some years ago, 
but <laughs> it's been, I don't even know how long. I guess I was in Canada two summers ago before it got closed, but that was over at Tamarack. And honestly, our business doesn't allow me to have that freedom like I once did. And then when you're guiding down here, it's tough to do that traveling. So you're blessed that you're able to actually go out and check different water at different times of the year. That's pretty cool. I don't have that many responsibilities yet. I just have a wife. That's about it. Other than that, I, I don't have very many responsibilities. Not yet. So you're just like Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly the same, it sounds like. <laughs> yes. No, I'm uh, off the hook. My wife spends most of her, well, her summers in Canada working at her family resort, fishing resort on Pipestone, and she's guiding up there or cooking or cleaning cabins, and I'm chasing muskies wherever wherever I can or wherever I want to or wherever my customers will follow me around to, basically. Um, so I'm fortunate for that. And eventually, yes, once we settle down and have a family, my fishing is going to get roped in a little bit more and I won't be so much of a couch gypsy, but I'm, I'm loving it. It's, it's super fun. I, I love exploring new water, you know, getting a different scene, a different, different thing. I mean, even, I mean, Fred, you fished a ton of the lakes in Minnesota and all of them around there, but a lot of my guiding is strictly on one lake and it's and you know a handful of spots and there's there's exploring that i'd love to do but you can't always do that with paying customers unless you know you tell those guys up front hey do you want to go try something totally off the wall and we're probably not going to catch one and you know you know not too many people are okay with throwing their money around like that it's nice to get a out of town change of pace and see some different water yeah absolutely i i know I thought about that this year. I'm like, man, I, I need to change my schedule a little bit just so that I can get out and do a little bit more. You know, I, I miss that. And there for a few years when I wasn't guiding, I, uh, I had the opportunity to go do it and I'm, I'm missing it again already. So I don't know. It's something I need to kind of set up in my schedule book so that I can actually get some of that free time. Like you're talking about for sure. So Doug, you mentioned, your wife's family's resort up in Canada. Let's kind of touch on that a little bit. How's their business bouncing back and what does the future look like up there? Um, so they're in a pretty decent spot. So they were in a situation, obviously no one could get across and a hundred percent of their clientele is American. So they were in a good spot as far as like their business was paid off. Like the camp was paid off. They didn't have a bunch of bills or statements coming from the bank saying, you know, you gotta make your payment on your, on your loan. So they were in a pretty good spot, but there's a lot of places up there that are, that are definitely hurting. And now even with the restrictions of people having to be vaccinated and all the politics that go along with having to cross, I think those resorts are, are, are going to do better, obviously, but they're not going to be back to what they were say pre COVID. Um, and I don't see any of those laws changing as far as vaccination requirements changing in the near future. So I think they're going to be okay. I don't think they're going to be great. But that being said, there's just less fishermen up there, uh, less pressure on the fish. And I think the people that, you know, are, are willing to go ahead and, and do the things needed to get across will, will benefit from it. And it was definitely, it sucked not going to Canada for, for one year. That was for sure. Obviously a good thing that it sounds like things will bounce back. It's unfortunate still for a lot of those resorts that, you know, that they're having, that they're still not back to where they should be. I had heard recently that the All Canada show was canceled and uh, somebody had, try to tell me that they thought it was like COVID related, but I think it's actually that those resorts just don't have the money to come down and, and gamble on a show. Is that kind of what you under, you hear or have you heard anything? Yeah. 
that's exactly what my mother-in-law told me that the, the Canada show was canceled. And basically is the resorts don't have the money to buy a booth and come down and get the COVID test in order to cross the border and, you know, drive all the way down and do the show. And I think that's an expensive week for him. People don't understand how much money it is to, to do a show, even for, you know, retailers like your, like yourself for TRO or, or mayhem and let alone having to drive that much further, spend that much more gas. And, you know, that's, that's an expensive weekend and the people just don't, don't necessarily have the money. And, you know, if the people want to come, they're going to come is what it comes down to. And social media is just going to have to help them out some more and get people those resorts. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, obviously these days there's, you know, lots of different ways to advertise. So they have that going for them. Whereas, you know, there's probably a, a day and a time where that's how they booked most of their clients were at these shows. But I'm guessing that's, it's, it's a portion of it. It's always nice to meet your customers face to face, but it's not as much of a requirement as it used to be. Right. I would totally agree with that, Jeff. You know, it's, it's weird. I, I really appreciate the shows and I think Doug mentioned this earlier and I know you do too, too, Jeff, but you know, it's kind of cool. Those, those are some, some uh, sometimes that's the only time I will see some of those potential customers throughout the whole year, you know, might be in Chicago, it might be in Milwaukee, maybe it's here in the twin cities. And I see them once a year at a show. Otherwise there's probably not a whole lot of communication, you know? And so there's been a huge gap with the, the lack of shows over the last year. It's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm wondering how they're going to snap back. And second of all, I don't know. Are shows going to continue? Are we going to see shows five years from now? That's another question that I guess I, I've always thought about. I mean, I think that, you know, Doug, you just came fresh off the uh, ice show, I believe, over there in St. Paul. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. I was there for, for three days with Thorne and uh, the ice show, as far as attendance, was down from the last year I'd worked it. That was for sure. I'd say our first day we were at like 50%, second day about 75 and then a third day, probably in that 50 to 60, 50 to 70, somewhere in there. So numbers were definitely down, um, but the people that were there were buying things. So that is, is good for the retailers. Um, but I think it's just still has to do with COVID and, you know, people are, are scared to get in that big group setting. And the table ice show is, is ridiculous. It's 10 times the size of any musky show. But I think too, like, I think shows will always have to be there. People can't just buy a rod over the internet. They need to have it in their hands. They need to feel the action and the power and, you know, buy a reel, they need to, you know, feel that in their hands. And I think there's a lot of that has to be done in person. And maybe it's more business for like the shops that have a brick and mortar store. But I think shows will always be something for people because musky people are, you know, touchy feely, look at the bait, look at the reel, hold the rod, stuff like that. I think you're always going to also just have, like you said a little bit, the social aspect of it too. I think guys just want to get together and just talk fishing stories and whatever. They can do a lot of that over the internet now, but there's a certain group of people that still do want to talk to people and not just, you know, put out messages on us on whatever it would be a Facebook group or, or whatever message board or text messages or whatever. Yep. So Doug, you know, you're talking about being in Canada, you're doing that thing. How long are you up there? And then when do you shift gears and kind of head back home to the Bay? I generally come home right around the 1st of August. We have like our, our fishing in the Bay kind of stalls out for a while. So, I go to I go to woods for July. Go catch a bunch of muskies and figure eight, which is the best thing in the world. And then uh, come home. You're generally around the first, and our, our fishing starts to get better around the first, and gets better from there on out as far as things back in the day. So get back, 
and start casting on the bay. And I don't, I don't think enough people understand like the casting opportunities around Green Bay. They always think of it as such a such a trolling deal, and you know it was, and it has been a great way to catch fish. But um, I know personally, I've caught more big ones casting in the years that I fished it than I have trolling. That's for sure. You know, Doug. One thing I I, I think of. So you're. You know, you're in Green Bay and you're in Minnesota and you're in Canada. So in order to stay on fish in all these locations, do you have a pretty good group of networking anglers that you work with? Is it stuff that you're relying on memories? Like, you know, how do you stay on fish in, in a bunch of different locations? So a lot of it, I would say, is just doing it. There's no, you can't replace just time in the water. And I'm, I'm fortunate now with, with what I do for a career that I get to spend a lot of time in the water. And um, a lot of it, too is networking um i've got a couple buddies in minnesota that you know we chit chat and let me know kind of what's going on or you know what's going on with the fish and the open water thing the open water bite the first time i did it was 2015 on vermilion um and luke kind of opened up my eyes to it and me and a friend of mine jace went up there and we had some success we caught some big fish you know jace got a 51 incher that trip it was just really cool. I, I really enjoyed it. And then once I started guiding, I wasn't able to get to Minnesota for like three years. And when I went back, I actually went to target a different part of the state that I'd never fished. And I relied on, you know, again, my buddy Jace to kind of tell me, you know, a handful of lakes that, you know, had the Cisco's and, you know, the mayflies and the things that require the open water bike to happen. And I went out there and it was the same exact program. It was just in a different setting. It was the same program as far as, depth and you know what you're looking for in your electronics and what the fish are doing it was just a different lake and it, it came back to me really easy it's fortunate for that but without without my buddy telling me you know what lakes had those fish you know it would have been you know, it would have taken some days to figure that out or some research on my own so that part um it's definitely it goes both ways and when i go to lake the woods um i have a good friend of mine Forrest, who actually stay with him and he guides there full time and we we talk every night we we spill everything to each other spots states colors like everything there is absolutely no secrets between us and working together as a team we definitely um you know learn faster can stay on the fish better you know parts of the lake i mean everything all the details of it so that's definitely a huge huge point but once you know once i kind of get my pattern or you know how i feel get a feel for what's going on you know being able to have been on the water for so many days i can generally stay on what's going on and it, it comes down to just experience and then going back to the bay uh, there's two guys that i network with here and it's the same thing you know we we just spill each everything to each other and just help help each other stay on the fish and there's times where i gotta pick guys up and then there's times where i need to be picked up and you know it goes both ways so having a network of guys is huge but i'd say a lot of it is memory i should write it down because um, one day I am going to forget it, and there's little things that I've, I'm sure I've forgotten. But after fishing for 18 hours, I go home and I, I go to sleep. Uh, to be a kid, <laughs> to be a kid again. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's so remarkable. I know some people that write everything down. They log everything, and I'll tell you what, it does definitely does help you. But I've never done it myself, Doug, and I kind of kick myself in the pants for that. You know, time to time, but. I got a couple of good buddies and networking is such a key part to this whole sport. I mean, you got a good network of people that you can work with and you're going to achieve goals that you wouldn't just on your own. So definitely something to consider, you know, the people that are out there listening. I mean, if they can work with some really good people, guess what? You're going to put more fish in the boat, plain and simple. 
then it, I think it's important too to keep that keep that circle tight. It's not always um, you know the, the more information you get, it isn't always a good thing because at one time at one point you're going to have to give information back, and that that can hurt you in the end too. I I tell people to keep their circle small, share as little as possible with as, or as most as possible with as few people as possible. I'd say that's pretty fair advice. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh, and it's just, I mean, social media has turned into such a, we call them the Facebook fishermen here, like guys just wait for for photos of fish to come up from Green Bay, and nope, they're in, you know, they moved in, they're in the weeds, let's pack up and go to Green Bay this weekend, and it's just funny to watch that now, I get guys slamming me on social media, I post a picture of me and her, my customer in shorts last weekend, I wish post was recent, for, well, I didn't want you on my tail uh, the day I caught this thing, just because I caught it, so it doesn't mean it has to hit the internet after right after it swims away it's pretty typical though doug i mean no matter what you do the social media platform there's going to be the lovers and the haters and i don't know how you deal with that other than uh i guess like me i don't post anything hardly at all during the whole season and then i try to post a little bit during the winter on my instagram i've never been a facebooker so i don't know i'm old school i guess no i i wish there was um more people that way and more people. So, I mean, you have to do it for your, for your business to, to a degree. But if, if I wasn't a guide, I, the world wouldn't see anything that would just be kept to myself. That's for sure. I mean, it, it comes down to a business, the business job and you have to do it to a degree. Um, but you just have to be smart with it. And you know, some people, I think the, the fish is on Facebook before it, it swam out of their hand. That just drives me nuts. I mean, you're literally just shooting yourself in the foot and people just, can't keep it to themselves after what the world now. Well, let me ask you, Doug, we've had this conversation on the podcast a couple of times. Do you think social media is good or bad for fishing? I think it's both. I think, I think social media is great for the sport of fishing as far as getting people into fishing. I know I've had a handful of people, even at the St. Paul I show, I just had guys come up to me. I came in, I, I love your videos. I watch them all the time. I, you know, and I just got into musky fishing and a lot of it had to do with you and a lot of your stuff has helped me you know, become a better fisherman or learn things and this and that. And I think that's great for the sport. Like you always want new people coming into the sport and that's how, you know, guys like yourself are able to, you know, have a business that relies off those, those people and myself included guide trips are huge. I mean, we all revolve around fishermen Our we make our living based off of fishermen. So I think it's good for that sense. Um, but at the same time, um, it definitely can hurt bites, hurt bodies of water, and hurt people in the, in the same fact. And you just have to be careful with it. And I think people are now starting to realize that and blurring out backgrounds and even that though, like blurring out backgrounds only does so much. Um, you're still catching fish. I mean, there might be just a time where they're biting and it might, you know, here personally, I can look at a fish and just by the pattern of the fish, know that's a green bay fish, right? Or you can look at a fish from St. Clair and you know, like that's a St. Clair fish. Like if, if you get dialed into that, I mean, Northern Wisconsin stuff or Leech Lake fish, it's hard to tell because um, there's so many lakes. But at the same time, I mean, there could just be a bite that's going on. It might not be moon related. It might not be, you know, solar or any anything like that. It could just be happening. So I just, I wish people would just hold that more to themselves for sometimes. But it's good and bad, like anything. I guess it's somewhat related, but not necessarily 100% related. What, like, we have conversations sometimes about, I guess we'll almost say like the state of musky fishing, you know, like you travel around, you've been in Canada, you've been in Wisconsin, you've been in Minnesota. What do you think the overall state of musky fishing is? 
I still think these are somewhat like the glory days of muskie fishing. What are you, what's your perception of it? Do you think these are the glory days or was 10 years ago better? Is 10 years moving in the future? Do you think that's going to be better? What's your guess? I think it's tough. I mean, I think different places are in a different state of what's going on. I mean, Minnesota needs help. They're, they're, you can't tell that. Minnesota needs stocking help. And, you know, it, Minnesota was arguably had the greatest fisheries that there ever were. And you know, I think Green Bay is at the top of that list as well. And Green Bay is not what it was um, even five years ago or six years ago. Um, just from the numbers that, you know, the guides that were here before me were putting up as far as numbers of big ones. So I, I think different places are in, in different states of you know how they're doing. I think Green Bay and the state of Wisconsin is in a good spot where I think a lot of our stocking efforts are good in up north and then also in our southern stuff in Madison. They're starting to put in different strains of fish. People are starting to see you know big ones come out of there, some 50-inch leachers coming out of there. Um, there's cool stocking efforts in the southeastern part of the state. Uh, so I think that's good. And then you've got bodies of water like St. Clair. That's a natural fishery, which is absolutely awesome. But I think Minnesota definitely needs needs help, and they deserve it. I mean, they're, those fisheries were absolutely incredible, and it's sad to see what's happened to them. I'm kind of glad, I guess, in one aspect of it that I didn't grow up 10 years ago and see, say, you know, Vermilion or Malax or any of that stuff because a lot of guys, I think, fell out of musky fishing after those fisheries died. And fishing's just never been the same, and for them, it, it, it'll never be what it was. Right. And they gave up musky fishing for that. And I don't, I don't ever want to give up musky fishing and I don't think I ever will. And if I have to, I'll just go guide in Canada or live in Canada. You know, a lot of the fish in Canada don't necessarily get to the size of what Minnesota fish have or what Great Lakes fish have. But I think I'm also at a point where I've caught enough big ones. I'm just happy to watch a four footer go around and eat my bait and figure it out. That, that will make me happy until the day I die. Have you ever went and played around any of those, you know, like Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky fisheries? Is that anything that you'd have plans to do in the future? I mean, I don't know. Some of the stuff, Sam Scott is a guide in Virginia, I believe. I'm like the James River somewhere down there. We, we chat here and there, and I think he's got a great thing going. But those, like people discovering those fisheries and musky fishing growing as far as that aspect, um, further to the east and to the south, is great. And it seems like there's a lot of really nice fish coming out. I mean, Virginia kicked out a couple like low 50 inches over the last couple of years and some really like impressive big ones. It was, uh, so that's cool to see. And it's, it's good. I think the sport of musky fishing overall is, is definitely growing and, and going in a good direction. I have to agree with Doug that Minnesota has its issues. And I honestly think that, um, uh, it's kind of crazy, but I would say this, I think we did lose quite a few fishermen, you know, a lot of musky fishermen here in the state of Minnesota, that's for sure. And I, I think that, you know, the sport of muskies, if you play in this game long enough, you start to see kind of a, I don't know, it's like a circle of events, right? I mean, the people come and they go, and I think the fishery is a big part of that as well. It's really cool to see kind of the revolving door of new people that are getting into the sport like yourself, Doug, and, and many others, you know, but I don't know. It kind of, it's, it's sad to see some of the other ones go too. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how we get any better at this point with, with the whole Minnesota deal. Uh, I know there's people working on it. There's uh, a bunch of different things going on around us, but you know, ultimately I, I don't think it's about the fishermen, the fishermen, they'll provide some money to make it better. That's for sure. So 
unfortunately, it becomes a political game more so than it is even a battle with the DNR. The terrible thing about Minnesota and their fishery, in my opinion, is how many people are against muskies in that state, you know, and I could be wrong. I'm a Wisconsin guy, but it doesn't seem like we have to deal. I'm sure there's lake associations that don't want muskies. There's many in Wisconsin and we have to shift gears, but it still doesn't seem like we have as much opposition to stocking them as what there is in Minnesota. And I I don't know, maybe it's because I'm not everywhere, but it doesn't seem like I hear much about opposition in any of the other states other than Minnesota. I think from from what I've heard from my friends from Minnesota, like Minnesota just doesn't have the same number of natural musky lakes um, or muskies that are native to their waters. And it's it's honestly sad just how much the DNR is just kind of starved the lakes that made Minnesota what it was. And there's so much stocking out in the Western lakes or even in new lakes, such as maybe like the Gull Lake thing was a huge controversial topic. Um, but at the same time, like Vermilion and Mille and Donka are like all like starving for fish. And there was such an argument over, uh, you know, trying to stock muskies in new lakes and creating new muskie fisheries when they weren't even taking care of the ones that made Minnesota muskie fishing what it was, which is kind of sad. I don't know. I, this is me myself speaking. If, if I were a Minnesota angler, only spent my time in Minnesota, I would, I would prefer for the DNR to just take care of the lakes that, you know, grow upper 50 inch fish, you know, versus trying to create new fisheries throughout the state and scatter your fish out. I mean, you only can have so many fish that are raised in the state and to put, you know, I'd rather put all your eggs in, you know, say 40 lakes versus trying to create 80, you know, and an extra 40 lakes to have 80 musky lakes because there's just not the density there. And I, I think a lot of it, Doug, here in our state, you know, it's, it's something that if you have a biologist that's pro musky, they're going to put more muskies in those bodies of water. You know what I mean? And unfortunately, what ends up happening is, is those bodies of water get probably more abuse than some of the other lakes that maybe aren't getting as much attention. So there's some issues with that as well. We're at a point in Green Bay right now. We haven't had a, our biologist retired um, over two years ago, and the DNR is just at a at a hiring like siege, and they can't hire anybody. And the the future of Green Bay is heavily going to determine on who our biologist is and who gets hired. Because unfortunately, it it does matter if your biologist likes muskies or doesn't like muskies. That's sadly part of it. And we'll uh, we we we're hoping for someone good to come in who is pro muskie. And even if someone's on the fence, just, you know, I've, I've offered to go and meet with whoever it is and, you know, give them kind of my opinion on the state of the muskie fishery and where I think it's at. And the rest of the fishermen being a multi-species guide, I'm fortunate enough to see kind of a lot of the different factors that go into our fishery. Um, but yeah, we're at a, we're at that kind of scary point too moving forward here. Who knows when we're actually going to get one. That's, that's the next scary thing. We can't go too much longer without one or things are going to, I think, going to kind of spin out of control. So Doug, in your network of guides from Minnesota, are there catch rates? I mean, suffering because of the, you know, let's say lack of stocking. Um, so I can't say I actually network with actually any of the guides, but some of the, my friends that I network with, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you just, just look at like, me and my friends from Minnesota used to go to Vermilion to go fish open water because there was a lot of fish and there's, you know, Vermilion has your chance at a 57 inch fish. And now we're, you know, everyone's pushing further and further West just because that's where the fish are. And there's not nearly as many fish in Vermilion or Tonka or the Metro stuff. So I, I don't, I think the anglers have adapted to it. Um, or even fishing more of your natural fisheries like leech. I think the anglers have adapted to it to try and keep their catch ratios the same. 
But if you look in the overall scale of things, like look how many guides have left Vermillion, or like look at all the guides that left um, elapsed. And it's just, it's sad to see that, unfortunately. You got to go where the fish are. And, if, you know, those guides need their customers to catch fish in order to make a living. And then if, if they're not there, like people aren't going to pay you and you can't make a living. Yeah, for sure. So, Brad, speaking, of, let's talk about positive things. It sounds like in talking to you, though, I don't want to, I mean, this was, this kind of took a left turn into Minnesota and talking about stocking, but you've had yourself a fairly good season, I think. I mean, based on my conversations with you. Yeah, I did. I mean, I I don't really talk a whole lot about it, but I mean, I, I did some searching too. I was fishing different bodies of water, partly because of pressure on certain bodies of water that I normally spend time on. So I'm kind of doing the same thing uh, in the aspect of just trying to get away from the crowds. And we've had a ton of pressure here with, with the border and and whatnot being closed. I mean, all, all the lakes in you know, the lower 48 saw more pressure because of that. And so unfortunately, like I, I joke with people all the time, like I fished the same three spots for a month. And then after that, I fish like another three spots for a month and a half, like six, six spots for two and a half months of fishing. Like there's really no getting away from people too often. Um, it just comes down to fishing smarter. And as, as far as your electronics and lure choices and dialing in a, a specific pattern when you, when you don't have the option to change lakes. All right, Doug, you know, we're getting close to the end of the podcast and we've, I'd say maybe like 50% of our episodes, we have our guests come on and, and offer up a tip to help people put more muskies in the net. Do you have something you can offer up? Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing for me first that comes to mind and I've talked about this before, like the most important piece of equipment in my boat is my electronics um, and understanding them and using them to my advantage. As far as like personal myself, I'm a, I'm a hummingbird guy. I'm, I love my birds. Uh, Megaside imaging is, is you know, it, it I, I, I wouldn't say old news, um, but it's definitely been around long enough where I think the majority of musky anglers have it. But I also get a lot of people in my boat that, that don't understand exactly what they're seeing and, and what it means and how to use it. So understanding those is, is super crucial. I mean, it's, without my graphs, I would not do half the fish or half the success that I have. And it doesn't matter where I'm fishing, Minnesota, Canada, Green Bay. Without those, I, I have zero confidence, and I, I know it would not be nearly what it, you know, my success ratio would not nearly be what it is with that. And I, I do a lot of stuff on my channel. This recent trip I did to um, Canada, we did a ton of stuff on electronics and had a ton of fish commit and bite due to electronics bites. And I go through a lot of that stuff and just explain to people what I'm seeing, how I'm seeing it, you know, what this means, what your electronics are telling you. Um, but really understanding your, your side imaging is very important. And now live sonar is coming, um, or is here, I should say. But understanding, starting there and really mastering your side imaging is so crucial. And it will do things for you that live imaging cannot. All right, Doug, we just want to thank you for coming on the uh, episode this week. For people that aren't familiar with you and they want to get more information about you, check out your videos on YouTube. How do they go about doing this? Yeah, I mean, if, if you search... Uh, any kind of musky content on YouTube or Doug Wagner Fishing is the name of my specific channel. Um, you'll find all sorts of stuff there, whether it's Green Bay stuff, Minnesota stuff, Canada. Film a lot of a lot of my adventures, not all of them, uh, but I'd say generally about 30 musky videos a year. And not all of them are fishing either. Some of them are just specific tips on rods or reels or tackle and adjustments to make. But that's probably the best way to kind of get familiar with me. And then off of that, um, a website, Doug Wagner Fishing, is, has all my guides service information 
Um, if you want to do any of that stuff, like I say, walleyes must be smallmouth. I mean, I'm, I think I'm pretty much full right now for next year, but there might be a couple spots for, for some um, bass or walleyes if, if guys want to start there. And we can always look into musky stuff from there. Sounds good, Doug. Well, we want to thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to talk musky fishing with us. We want to thank all of our listeners for coming on and spending another hour and whatever, 10 minutes with us talking or listening about musky fishing. We hope that uh, these episodes help you put a few more fish in your net. And we'll catch everybody again with a new episode next week.